0: Welcome to Birkbeck. Yes, we have air conditioning, so that's a bonus. Um, My name's Eric Kaufman. I uh, am a a professor of politics here uh, in the Department of Politics at Birkbeck. And I'm very pleased to uh, welcome you all tonight to this event entitled, Is Populism a Threat to Democracy? Um, And tonight's event is hosted by the Department of Politics, but also uh, by the uh, Center for the Study of British Politics and Public Life here at Birkbeck. Uh, And we've got a real. A treat for you tonight, Uh, an extremely impressive lineup of panelists uh, who put me all in the shade. Um, I've been lucky enough to get to know uh, these four individuals. uh, And and they're all extremely interesting and extremely well accomplished, perhaps embarrassingly well accomplished. Um, All have written things, important things, around tonight's topic. uh, And hopefully we'll get a lively discussion and debate. Uh, There will also be plenty of time for for Q&A in the second half of the proceedings. Just to introduce our panelists for this evening, we have, uh, beginning here with David Goodhart, who uh, founded Prospect Magazine, uh, was the head of the think tank Demos, uh, and is currently at uh, Policy Exchange. Uh, among his books, most recently, is uh, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, published in 2017. Um, and. By the way, copies of uh, a number of the books are going to be available after the event uh, for purchase and signature. Um, Next we have uh, Sasha Polakow-Suransky, who uh, is Deputy Editor of Foreign Policy, formerly an editor at the New York Times and Foreign Affairs, uh, author of the book Go Back Where You Came From, The Backlash Against Immigration and the Fate of Western Democracy, also published in 2017, and also copies available. After the event. Uh, Next, we have Yasha Monk, uh, lecturer in government at Harvard, is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation, which is a think tank in uh, a centrist think tank in Washington, D.C. And he has written uh, most recently The People versus Democracy Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Uh, That came out in March 2018, and some copies will be available as well. And then We have uh, Claire Fox, uh, director and founder of the Academy of Ideas, uh, who runs the Battle of Ideas and Debating Matters. Uh, A regular, uh, for those of you who listen to the BBC, uh, Radio 4's Moral Maze, and also on BBC television, has appeared on BBC television's Any Questions, uh, is a columnist at the Times uh, Educational Supplement, and is the author most recently of um, I Find That Offensive, 2016. Um, The other thing, uh, what I'll then say next, is that tonight's event is being video recorded and will be available as a center podcast. Um, The order of play is going to be pretty much as follows. We're going to sort of depart a little bit from the usual format of of opening statements. And and this is sort of thanks to uh, uh, an innovation provided by members of the panel. What we'll do instead is I'll ask each member of the panel a pointed question, which they'll answer. And that'll hopefully throw up some of the divisions uh, or at least the disagreements, and then what i 'll do is open it up to the panelists to to discuss and debate these ideas, and then, after a period of time, we 'll turn it over to you for q and a so i 'm um, probably just going to begin with the way people are seated. Uh, it seems easiest to me in terms of uh, in terms of asking questions, so we 'll begin here with david um, so the the question for you, as I op- unwrap the uh, the candy bar is. Does populism divide the world uh, into good and bad? Do populists, should I say, uh, set up this division between the the bad elites and the good people when reality comes in shades of gray? And doesn't that undermine a politics of reason and compromise? So I'll let you go with that for a few minutes, and then we'll move on to the next. Um,
1: Yeah, I I guess that probably is true for uh, some populists, but I think it's probably true for most people involved in politics. yeah, uh, but you know, politics is um, about about kind of you know tribal feelings, identity. All all, all politics is really identity politics. Um, we've had a p- particular variation of identity politics that's developed uh, in more recent times. Um, but I I'm, I'm kind of slightly sceptical. I mean, the academic definition of populism, which tends to see populists as positing this sort of undifferentiated uh, people. Against the you know, the greedy or distant elites, and indeed possibly against you know the, the other the ethnic minority other, it's all obviously a bit neat, and I don't think it actually does describe how uh, you know someone like Na- Nigel Farage or um, or Madame Le Pen think of themselves. They think of themselves as a kind of lobby group um, for people who have been the small C conservatives, for people who do not like the um, the, the great double liberalism that's dominated our politics for the last 30 or 40 years, the economic liberalism and the social and cultural liberalism. And they, they're trying to achieve, um, and I think, um, you know, at its best, um, you know, these movements are, are, are involved in a kind of legitimate rebalancing of our politics, which, as I say, has been very dominated by, um, by liberal <laughs> themes of, of openness, large-scale immigration, rapid social change, all of these things that the, that, the, that the highly educated and more affluent members of society can take in their stride, but many um, ordinary voters find threatening. Um, and I think um, a, lo- a lot of the writing on uh, populism has has indulged in this kind of triangulation. Um, I mean, I, I, I think Yash's book is an example of it. Ivan uh, Krastev does this too, that the 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 idea that the two parts of liberal and democracy are coming apart that the the elites are becoming undemocratic and the populists are becoming illiberal and I uh, I've argued um, in my review of Yasha's book I've argued that there's much more evidence for the former than for the latter now that's changed a bit just in the last few weeks I mean we've seen uh, Salvini in Italy and um, developments in Denmark I mean they're um, there clearly are um, illiberal, you know, quite powerful illiberal forces in in these populist parties, but I think still, on the whole, the, the constitutional liberalism is not under threat in Europe. Um, and I don't think there is sufficient. As I say, there are kind of there are there are there are kind of fringe movements, but but most, even people who vote populist, I would say, were decent populists. They've accepted most of the great liberalisation over the last 30 or 40 years on race on gender on sexuality and so on uh, there are some excesses but i think you know the crying wolf about uh, populism leading us to the to the you know into something close to the 1930s is um, is 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 wrong and, and indeed can be politically damaging i mean like all crying wolf is politically damaging because we will be desensitized uh, to you know, if we do f- face real political threats down the road Yeah. The final thing I'd say on this is that um, I think we've seen a rather welcome um, sort of domestication of populist parties. I mean, populist parties, after all, have been in power on and off across across Europe for for the last fifteen years. Um, I can't remember what the current uh, current current toll is. It's probably about five or six governments have uh, are either have direct populist party participation or, uh, or are indirectly supported by them. Uh, Fifteen, um, I believe. But Fifteen, right. Um, well, and, and often when we see this happening, we see the domestication of these parties. We see them you know, understanding that, that, you know, that the slogans of opposition don't work so well. Um, and I think that, on the whole, is a healthy thing. And I think we tend to be, uh, you know, particularly in the kind of liberal world of, 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 of acad- academia, We tend to be a little bit asymmetrical about this. So, you know, when when parties of the far left uh, are in uh, in coalitions, um, or you know, or you know, leftist Greens are in coalitions, we think that's absolutely fine. But when when populist nationalists are in coalitions, we think this is um, kind of almost the end of the world. So, I think uh, I think we should. I think much of much of what populism stands for is perfectly legitimate. Uh, it's a pushback against uh, that over dominant liberalism of the last 30 or 40 years it's a legitimate rebalancing and um, we should um, uh, we should point out where we have excesses where indeed constitutional liberalism may be uh, threatened in, you know, with particular policies or p- particular acts of governments um, but I think the, the sort of sweeping rejection of this uh, of this movement um, is not the right way to think about it thank you
0: Thanks, David. Um, We'll move along to Sasha here. And what I'll have you do is maybe just bracket your thoughts about what each speaker has said until we move to the discussion. So um, Sasha, uh, the question really here is has the elite pursuit of liberal immigration led to the crisis of democracy in the West? In other words, if the concern is a worry about democracy uh, and about liberalism, isn't the solution simply to tighten up on immigration. So that's, yeah, just your thoughts on that.
2: I think it's (laughs) fair to argue that the left definitely deserves some blame for the political situation that we're in today. I think you're right to argue that ignoring some of the grievances of voters for decades created an opening for parties on the far right, as I would classify them populist nativist parties to seize that political terrain. And one of the ways that they've done this is not simply using the immigration issue, but they've also, in a very savvy way, combined resistance to immigration with a defense of the welfare state, which traditionally was the terrain of the left. And so what you see now in places like Denmark, in places like Holland, and even with Le Pen in France, is a sort of nativist defense of the welfare state that argues both we need to shut the borders and keep immigrants out, and we need to defend your health care benefits and your elder care benefits and your child care. And so this has real appeal to voters who used to vote for the French Communist Party or the Danish Social Democrats. So I think that in that sense, um, the left sort of didn't listen to some of their core constituencies and ceded some of this political terrain. But I would disagree that the solution is simply to follow their lead and concede that argument completely and shut the borders. And I would say that there is a very bright line to be drawn between a debate about restrictionism, saying that perhaps letting in one million people in the space of one year is too much and too fast for a society to integrate newcomers successfully. I think that's a very different argument than some of what you hear from the National Front, from UKIP, from the AFD in Germany. There's another argument that's very prevalent now, we're hearing a lot of it in Italy these days from the likes of Salvini, that there's a civilizational threat, that these people are coming to take over our countries, they're outbreeding us, that in 20 or 30 years, no one will be speaking German or Italian anymore, they'll all be speaking Turkish or Arabic. And I think that we need to distinguish between those two arguments, and this goes directly to David's point about what he calls decent populists. I would argue that in fact, a lot of these parties are far from decent, and that their long-term agenda is not a liberal democratic one, but actually one that would erode some of those core liberal democratic values that we hold dear in the U.S. and the U.K. and many Western European countries. And I was glad to hear David acknowledge that uh, Salvini has has said some things that are cause for concern. Uh, we've seen in Poland. In the last 48 hours, protests against the purging of the judiciary, a clearly illiberal move on the part of the Polish government. In Denmark, in the past week, the government, with the support of centrist and center-left parties, has pushed through a law that was the brainchild of the far right that will now require a sort of coercive integration, which separates one-year-olds in so-called ghetto neighborhoods and they've been called officially in the legislation ghetto children, and enroll them in mandatory integration courses to spread Danish values and culture that are not required for the rest of the population. So we see this happening even in countries that we've always thought of as progressive icons, like Denmark. And I would argue that that's troubling and that that's a rollback of some of the core liberal democratic norms that should be defended. And so while it's important to listen to the grievances of voters. You don't need to make a moral concession to these parties and say, yes, you're right about everything and let's just open the door for all of your policies to be implemented. And what I fear is happening in Europe, in many different countries now, is that the centrist parties are so afraid of losing more voters, to these far right populist parties, that they're essentially caving in on issue after issue. And so even when these parties don't win elections, even when they only have 12 or 15 or 20% of the vote, they manage to push through their legislative agenda because everyone else is so afraid of losing more voters to them. So in effect, they don't have to win elections because they've already won the political debate and they're controlling the parameters of that debate. And I think that that's what's changed and that is
0: what is a threat. Thanks thanks, thanks very much, Sasha. Um, Yasha, next, uh, we'll move to you. And I guess the question is probably somewhat come up already, but this question, have sacred taboos essentially prevented mainstream parties from addressing the policy preferences of voters? you know, essentially ha- has perhaps um, the main have the mainstream parties in upholding, a kind of cordon sanitaire or, or some of these taboos around discussing issues such as immigration or multiculturalism opened up a market opportunity for populist right entrepreneurs, a bit like ban, uh, ban, banning the sale of alcohol opened up an opportunity for bootleggers. Yes or no? <laughs>
3: <Lovely> <laughs> questions. Uh, can, can I start by saying that I'm going to refuse ever again to serve in a panel of Sasha. Uh, Aby's, I don't like coming to so speaking after somebody who has somewhat similar views and who makes them very well. And B, because it's just too confusing for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha, Yasha, this is not, it's not acceptable. Um, well, look, if, if a stop clock is is right twice a day, then populists tend to be right three or four times a day. And it's usually more in their analysis than in the solutions that they uh, propose. Um, and so I think that there are certain areas in which populists have pointed to, you know, some real shortcomings and some real problems um, that establishment parties haven't dealt very well with. And this runs the gamut of different kinds of uh, political issues. Some of those are on aspects of uh, migration. Um, I think, for example, in Germany over the last couple of years, there's probably been a little bit too much reluctance to talk about some of the concrete ways in which uh, uh, state institutions are struggling with integrating, which is a momentous task, one million new arrivals and so on. Um, uh, and I think that's been a mistake because it does allow populists wrongly to claim that there's a conspiracy of silence and all of those things you might hear during the course of a night. Um, uh, so yeah, I think there are certain failings that, that that does point out. But but I really think that sort of the, the the tenor of your question slightly focuses on the wrong side of the equation, which is to say that the main thing I'm concerned about is not uh, that. It is the ways in which populists are, in fact, dangerous. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's remarkable that we're sitting here literally f- within 48 hours of a massive attack on the judiciary in Poland. And uh, we've already heard tonight that, the con- that constitutional liberalism is not under threat in Europe. Now, I don't know whether Europe starts west of the Orden line and the old berlin wall but if it starts to the east of the order Neisser line I, I just do not understand how we can look at the political events of this week and say that what has happened in poland is that the government has passed a law which essentially says all judges have to retire at the age of 65 but you know what the head of government can randomly give out exceptions and exe- essentially, that means that they have purged all of the people on the Constitutional Court that aren't loyalists. And then they gave exceptions to all of the ones who are loyalists. And as though that wasn't enough, they replaced one of the people who was forced to retire with a guy who's 66 years old. <laughs> now, you know, perhaps you believe in a form of democracy that does not require the separation of powers and the rule of law that runs purely by majority will. And we can have a debate about whether or not that is attractive. I would argue that one of many reasons that that's not attractive is that that's not going to be stable for very long. Because over time, it'll become impossible Mm -hmm. to displace by democratic means a head of government who's been democratically elected. That's the reason why we need liberal democracy. It's that those institutions actually safeguard the democratic part when they are working. But that's not even the terms of debate we're having. We're debating about whether constitutional liberalism is under threat. And I don't see how we can look at the events in Poland and say that it isn't. I don't see how we can look at, what happened, at what's happened in Hungary over the last seven or eight years and not recognize that this is a fundamental transformation of uh, our political world and the assumptions that political scientists have had. It is not just Francis Fukuyama, who spoke about the end of history uh, at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 1990s. It is mainstream political scientists who assumed that once a country had more than about 12,000 pounds GDP per capita in today's terms, once they changed governments for free and fair elections more than about two times, a democracy was safe. Well, what's happened in Hungary over the last seven or eight years is that state television has turned into a propaganda outlet. Most private media institutions have been forced to sell to allies of a prime minister. The electoral commission has been staffed with Mm -hmm. his loyalists in such a way that it uh, initiated spurious proceedings against all of the opposition parties and levied them with huge fines but did not do the same thing for the ruling party, Fidesz, of the prime minister. You've had uh, deep changes to the electoral system that are hand-tailored to serve the ruling party. And finally, according to the OSCE and even the loyalist Supreme Court of Hungary, you've had widespread electoral irregularities. So you no longer have free and fair elections in Hungary. You are moving towards what Hungary has already become, what Russia has already become, a country in which, yes, there's elections, but they don't actually give the opposition a fair shot at winning. Now, by the way, the normal, highly intelligent response to people who point out those kinds of dangers from the populists is to scoff and to laugh publicly. So it's a great uh, exhibit, A. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So I am deeply concerned about that. And when this is happening in countries in which people said a few years ago it could never happen, I am concerned that it might also happen in countries in which we are saying populists take exactly the same first steps. So my concern about Italy is not only, for it is also, but it is not only that Matteo Salvini, the new interior minister, refused to condemn a former candidate of his own political party who went and shot seven African migrants in the southern city of Macerata. It is also that he is attacking the press and the institutions and so on, and claiming that he alone really speaks for the people in exactly the way we've seen in Hungary and Turkey, and yes, on the left in Venezuela and so on. And so I think once you get populism, once you get people who claim that they alone speak for the people and that anybody who disagrees with them is by virtue of that illegitimate,
0: you are in real danger. Thanks very much, Yasha. Um, And finally, we come to Claire. Okay, so and the question here, I guess turning it around a bit, is to say, well, is elite-led liberalism really so bad? I mean, isn't elite-led liberalism uh, a positive force that led to, for example, desegregating the American South? Uh, Has it not been responsible for many improvements in human well-being? So what's really so wrong with an elite-led liberalism, in your opinion?
4: Um, I've got no objection to liberalism as a philosophy, and in fact, I embrace it. I fear it's being um, betrayed, though, and um, uh, there's a number of things, I suppose, to reflect on here. I think the, the greatest threat, I, I, I absolutely agree, by the way, that constitutional democracy is under threat. Um, we have a, a very good example rather closer to home than Hungary or Poland, though, which is in, um, here in Britain which is is that one of the things that's happened is that here you've had a situation whereby there was a democratic vote and the elite have decided to ignore it. Um, As far as I'm concerned, you know, the greatest threat to democracy at the moment is the elite led assumption that it knows better than the voters. Now, of course, this can be, you know, one of the things that's nerve-wracking about doing this discussion, of course, is that, you know, I will be and I'm regularly called a populist. Um, This is effectively used as a term of abuse to delegitimize people who actually you disagree with. I think that's one of the confusions. I don't doubt that there is a category called populism. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But if you want to kind of say that somebody's on the wrong side and is a threat and is xenophobic and is racist and is anti-democratic, you call them a populist. And in Britain, the Brexit vote has been called a populist vote. And we have an elite who have decided, and this is the constitutional point, I think. It's fascinating to me that after that vote, that an unelected House of Lords, for example, could try and stymie that vote regularly. Um, You have a conversation that's going on at the moment that says that the problem is is that the voters of various countries are too ill-informed to be trusted with democracy. You have a situation whereby there is a concerted uh, intellectual effort at uh, Posing the one person, one vote, all equal at the ballot box, as uh, a, as being somehow a very dangerous game to play because you might get the wrong result, and I think therefore the notion that democracy is under threat is very real, but it's actually under threat from the anti-populists very often, or the kind of people who are kind of arguing that. On your elite-led point, which I think is worth uh, dwelling on, I think um, you need leadership. Um, but every politician, of course, and every political leader of any organization uh, has to be accountable, has to be uh, fighting on behalf of it. can't be an imposed, you know, it can't be an enlightened elite. Every authoritarian regime, of course, uh, says, well, we know better than the populace, so we'll have an enlightened elite that will decide for you. You know, I, if, if, you, if you go to any authoritarian country... They'll say, well, we're only doing what's in the best interest of the people. They just don't know about it. You know, they're all (laughs) a bit backward. I mean, China thinks like that. This is what these people think, right? They just haven't caught up with the program, right? And we will act on their behalf. So, of course, I want leadership, but the people who are our political leaders have to be accountable to us. And that's what national sovereignty is, often now characterized, by the way, as nativism. Uh, uh, That's what popular sovereignty is, often now caricatured as populism. But one of the reasons why this has uh, changed, I think, is because over recent years, um, in many ways, many of the establishment parties have acted as a kind of technocratic elite that have treated uh, the populations of their countries as objects to be done to. There's a very nice article by Larry Elliot in The Guardian today. I don't often say nice things about The Guardian, <laughs> but this is a brilliant article. He's uh, talking about the kind of people in forgotten towns. And it says, you know, if the Labour Party wants to win back its working class, it might remember that there's things that they might be interested in beyond parenting classes, sugar tax, and being told that they're not fit to raise their own children. And that this is, if they think that's a way of winning the hearts and minds. But there's been a kind of um, condescension by an elitist... Uh, 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 political uh, 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 people to people, not taking them seriously as subjects, as, as people who can be autonomous. And I think that that uh, has led to a huge gap between the uh, political parties and the, the mass of people, which is one of the reasons why they had no clue, no clue in this country that Brexit was going to happen. I mean, they really did think you could go out and mobilise people and tell them it was the most important vote of their lifetime ever, that every vote counted, and that everyone would then do what they were told by the establishment, vote remain, and then go back home. Right? That's what they thought, like a stage army. And when it didn't go their way, there was a shock. But the fact that nobody even noticed, the media didn't notice, the academi- academics didn't notice, I think is an indication of the fact that for first time historically for some time, Um, The idea that there is an alternative to this technocratic, undemocratic, uh, 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 elitist view of of democracy that we will decide uh, on your behalf because we know better is being rejected. In the woodwork, there will be elements that I disagree with, that I find unsavoury. There will be aspects of politics that I don't agree with, but I'm more frightened by an elite that does not think it needs to be accountable a political elite that thinks that uh, a, a democracy is something you can suspend, uh, that they can treat uh, ordinary voters with contempt. So I'm more frightened by that than anything that's happening in Poland or Hungary. Okay,
0: well, thanks, Claire. I mean, it's, it's, so we do have clearly areas of disagreement here, which is always good. You don't want everyone to agree, and that was the point of this exercise. Um, <coughs> what I'd like to do now is just, essentially, just allow each panelist to say something based on what you've heard the others say, and then hopefully we will move to a kind of discursive format. So David, do you want to just kick things off here?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, Eastern Europe is to some extent sui generis, I think. Um, it has a very peculiar recent history since the end of communism. And some of the societies, particularly Poland, are very, very sharply divided. Um, I, in ways that actually are in some ways quite reassuring. I mean, there is an extremely vibrant democracy in Poland. Um, there are some shenanigans going on, which I agree does challenge mainstream constitutional liberalism. I, I, I doubt very much it is going to last the test of time. Um, the, you know, the, uh, this is not a, I mean, there is a very strong opposition. Uh, you know, th- we, we've had a kind of winner takes all shift in, in, in this very polarized society. So when the other lot were in power, they didn't do exactly um, what is happening now, but they were—they put their placemen in positions and so on. You had, you had, There was a kind of ruthlessness about it um, that is very unattractive. Um, but um, precisely because of that division, I'm not, I'm not worried for the future of Polish democracy, albeit um, the current government are, are um, taking liberties. Um, I mean, in Hungary, it's a slightly different issue. I mean, this is a... Uh, you know, it's kind of it is too majoritarian. Um, you know, the government is too popular, and, tha- and that does actually create a problem. Um, they should be creating opposition, not um, not stifling it. Um, but I mean, I think I mean the the I mean, I, would, I disagree with uh, I, I agree with much of what Claire said, but I think I, I do disagree with this idea that um, um, uh, I mean that what the government is currently doing, you know, is, is trying to create a uh, The Brexit vote did not mandate a particular form of Brexit, and I think they are trying to take as much of the country with them as possible, um, and that's a very difficult thing to do because the country is very divided about about Brexit. But I don't think that is um, sensibly described as a challenge to constitutional liberalism here. Um, I mean, to Sasha, I think I would say, um, you know, you, you don't like the arguments that Orban and others make about kind of the sort of civilization civilizational threats, but but presumably you accept that it is entirely justified for um, uh, for parties to support, if not closing borders, you know, at least very, very low levels, very moderate levels, uh, returning to the very modest levels of immigration that would have been common in the you know the 1980s, 1990s perhaps. Uh, you think that presumably is is legitimate. Um, um, indeed, you, you might accept, um, you know, even within the context of the, the Geneva Conventions, that it might be legitimate to uh, have refugee sort of, um, you know, immigration sorting centres outside Euro- the European Union, outside European countries. Because, of course, part of the problem, um, and this is the problem in America too, is that we have such embedded liberalism. Once somebody's in the space of, of, a, Euro- of a modern European country or the United States, they 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 can call upon you know many of the rights um, of the existing citizens, um, and it's very hard for that reason. It's very hard to deport people once they're in countries. Crudely, I mean, Brit- you know, Britain deported six thousand people against their will last year, excluding prisoners. Um, you know, this is um, this is not a very large number. Um, that that is one of the reasons why people are thinking. You know, can we you know sort the people who are the genuine refugees from the others? somewhere else, um, because that is the only way to stop it. I mean, I assume you disagree with both of those views, but you think they're legitimate, I hope, and in which case, you know, you think that, you know, the the policies of the Front National and UKIP and so on are legitimate policies, even though you disagree with them.
0: Sasha. (laughs) Teed up for you there.
2: (laughs) Elected governments have the right to set policies. I think that the problem in Hungary, you bring up Orban wanting to close borders and drastically reduce immigration, there's the small matter of the fact that Hungary is part of the European Union and has repeatedly refused any Mm -hmm. sort of burden sharing with other countries, especially Italy and Greece, which have borne the brunt of the influx. And so what's happening now in a, a sort of strange, and and irrational political alignment is that you have Salvini in Italy, who's not the prime minister but is effectively running the government and leading the way in terms of policy, buddying up with far-right leaders in Eastern Europe, including Orban. It's in Italy's national interest to reduce the numbers of people in Italy because so many are coming in across the Mediterranean. And Salvini is allying himself. With people who have no interest in sharing that burden whatsoever. And so when, when people critique Merkel, for instance, they say, oh, you know, she took in a million people. One of the reasons that Germany took in a million people, one of the reasons that Sweden took in so many people, is that no one else was willing to share that burden or agree to quotas, and they're still not. So in addition to all of the other worrying illiberal trends that Yasha has mentioned, there is a reluctance to actually come to any sort of agreement that might help resolve this crisis. And so I think that there's a lot of hypocrisy on the part of leaders like Orban because they are criticizing everything that's happening and saying we need to strengthen ex- Europe's external borders but they're not willing <coughs> to help solve the existing problem. And the the other thing, um, you know, David ha- ha- has rep- repeatedly used the phrase decent populists or acceptable or moderate populists. I would argue that if if you look at a lot of these parties and what their vision is and the way that they talk about refugees, they're not talking about setting up a German consulate in Bodrum and processing the asylum applications of refugees in Turkey so that they don't risk drowning on their way to Greece. That would be a reasonable and decent policy proposal. These people are instead saying, we should shoot if refugees come across the border. That was Frau Capitri, the leader uh, of the AfD during the crisis in, in 2015. You have Marine Le Pen telling her followers on Twitter to go read the novel Camp of the Saints, which was written in the 1970s and whose heroes shoot refugees from the hills as they land on French shores. So we're not talking about decent policy. We're not talking about sensible and moderate proposals we're talking about people who have a very scary and threatening vision. So I think, again, we need to draw a line between people who are making sensible policy proposals about restricting numbers in order to maintain a successful pluralist society through slow and methodical integration of new populations. And this is, by the way, something that you hear from some of the dissenting voices within Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, people who were not happy about her inviting a million people to come into Germany who criticized that policy, but after the fact said, okay, these people are now here we need to manage it, we need to do something about it, and the way to do that is to integrate them and maybe in 10 or 20 years, it will be beneficial for our society. We don't believe it will be instantly, but that's what we do now because we're a liberal democracy. That is very different than saying, we are going to send people to processing centers in North African countries like Libya, where certain migrants have been sold into the slave trade or abused in horrendous ways, those are two very different things. So I think that when when we're having this debate about what is a legitimate and decent policy, we need to look at what the long-term views of these parties are. And I would caution (coughs) David and everyone else to take a very hard look at what these people are actually proposing, the way that they're talking about refugees and migrants. Are they saying we need to revisit the the refugee convention and perhaps tweak it in a way that is more uh applicable to to the current crisis because we're not in the post-world war ii years anymore that might be a reasonable discussion to have or are they saying we need to kick all of these people out yasha mentioned sorry let me finish yasha mentioned salvini and uh the the northern league member who murdered seven african migrants Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing to mention on that count is before that murder, those murders took place. Uh, Salvini had very publicly referred to a, an African migrant who had killed an Italian a few months earlier as a worm, and said, "How did this worm manage to stay in Italy?" And you know, David doesn't like analogies to to more violent periods in European history, and I think that he's right to say that we shouldn't jump to conclusions and compare everything to the 1930s. But when you hear a politician with a mass following refer to someone as a worm, and a few weeks later, a mass murder takes place by a member of that party, I think we have to stop and think, what role are these leaders playing? Are they fomenting violence? Are they giving permission to certain people to do things that are very dangerous and lead these countries in a very dangerous direction. And I think that this sort of Pollyanna populism that, that that you envision, where everything is seen through rose-tinted glasses, and Marine Le Pen is closer to Pompidou than to Pujab, and you know people like Bjorn Hoek in, in the AFD in Germany, the guy who said that the Holocaust Memorial is a monument of shame, is somehow uh, a decent or moderate populist. I think that's wrong, and I think we need to stop and question those categorizations. I'm not
1: saying that all populists are decent populists, obviously, um, but I'm saying most populist voters do have basic democratic decent instincts. But the voters and and the
2: leaders are different. Yeah,
1: maybe so, but you are basing future, you're basing your analysis, you're taking some extreme quotes and extreme acts by some of these populist leaders and making assumptions about future policy, uh, you know uh, it, it, in the future when these com- when these parties might govern on their own, which is a is a uh, highly unlikely political outcome but my my point to you was the the, the basic policies of returning to much more moderate levels of immigration um, that, you know the, the policies that these parties stand for election on they're not standing for election on on you know their their extreme quotes and their extreme acts they're standing for 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 policies that would have been considered quite mainstream about 30 or 40 years ago, um, you know, for, so ch- you know, changing the way in which we um, sought uh, genuine refugees from economic migrants outside Europe is that such a you know is that uh, such a monstrous policy that it shouldn't be allowed? Uh, and as I say, I mean, returning to, to very moderate levels of immigration, these are the policies that the parties stand on. They're completely legitimate. These are legitimate parties. They have fringe voices in them who say, you know, crazy and damaging things, and that can add to, that can lead to, 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 to horrible acts like the one you described. But it doesn't mean, you know, in their, you know, parties like the Front National and UKIP are perfectly legitimate parties, and most of the people that vote for them. Are voting, I think, you know, on, on perfectly reasonable grounds. Just a quick well, response well, to no, that. I mean, I okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, first, of all, I want to
3: point something out, which is that it's 6:45, it's that means we've been talking 45 minutes, and we haven't yet mentioned Donald Trump. <laughs> please do. Please do. That's, that's that's an achievement. I think we should be <laughs> proud of ourselves. Um, but I think it also shows something about the debate we've just been having, because. Uh, the thing that I find amazing among the sort of defenders of the populists is that they do something which we sometimes accuse more mainstream political <coughs> forces, which is that you know they concede each particular point, but are strangely reluctant to see a pattern. <laughs> so this populist is bad, all right, perhaps he is, and that populist is bad, okay, perhaps he is, and that country democracy has perished because of a populist, okay, perhaps in that country. But please don't jump to any conclusions about the world in general. It might not be that there's something about the nature of these populists that's actually leading to those outcomes. Um, uh, uh, one of the great things that Donald Trump has said recently uh, in his subtle political language uh, is um, to praise Kim Jong-un, uh, because he's such a tough leader who's managed to get control of you know, a, a country of tough people. The tough people, these North Koreans. Donald Trump really got control of them. Um, uh, you might say that's a little bit of of, of victim blaming. Um, you know, I think actually saying that in a country like Poland, uh, you know, oh, it's just the kind of country that's a little tough and, uh, you know, it's ruthless and the government just takes over and does whatever it wants. That's just what happens there. And, you know, after all, this is slightly a sui generis country. Um, is a little bit of a piece with that, um, because if you actually know something about Polish history and democracy, that is simply not true. It is not true that previous governments since the fall of communism have (coughs) taken over courts. It is not true that they have forced the sale of private media outlets into the hands of their allies. It is true that those small changes in the political emphasis on the main news, but very subtle ones. If you speak Polish and actually listen to what goes on day after day after day in Polish television now, it is just straightforward propaganda. And so this kind of obfuscation of equating normal functioning of democracy with a full frontal attack on it, I think is, I- is scary to me, because it is part of this obfuscating strategy of saying, well, OK, this case is bad, this case is bad, but let's never see a general pattern, as is the claim that this is just about Central Europe. Because let's look at the United States. Let's look at what Donald Trump is doing in that country. Because if there's one country where you would expect the institutions to stand strong against the assault of a populace, there would be the United States, which after all is, sorry, Britain, the oldest democracy in the world is uh, a very affluent country, a country with deep democratic traditions, with an incredibly vibrant civil society. And I remember the debates I was having when Donald Trump was elected less than two years ago, of people saying, people invoking a line that was used about General Eisenhower. Oh, poor Ike, he's going to get into office and he'll shout and he'll command, but nothing at all will happen because democracy is not like the army. Well, actually, Donald Trump has already transformed the country in some very deep ways not just with very cruel state policies like separating children from the parents at the border, but also with a rather extraordinary attack on liberal constitutionalism, with an attempt to close down an investigation into potential malfeasance by him and his circle of people, by the claim that the president can pardon absolutely anybody at will by a deep attack on the FBI and the CIA and other institutions in the United States, by turning uh, things like the House Intelligence Committee, which was always quite a bipartisan committee, which really strived in so far as possible for political neutrality, into just vehicles of a presidency. Two years ago, I was having debates in which the pessimistic vision of the Republican Party was that it was going to, uh, slowly be replaced by Trump as political candidates in the primary. The optimistic vision was that this wouldn't happen, and that it would basically constrain Trump whenever he, in any way, went against the Constitution. What's happened is much worse than pessimists like I suggested, which is that it has basically become a personalized political organization, the price of membership of which is absolute loyalty for the president, an unwillingness to criticize him, and a willingness to go along with his attacks in those institutions. Now, Trump has only been in power a year and a half. And when you look at what was going on in other countries in which populists took over a year and a half in, it's not like democracy was already destroyed. I'm not saying there's no longer a democracy in the United States, but the rate of deterioration of the institutions there and the nature of the attack on them, I take very seriously. And that's not Eastern Europe. It's not just yet another case. It is the most powerful and important democracy in the world. So I think when you look at all of those things, you can't just say, oh, this is this case, this is that case. There may be some people who are misdescribed as populists who are perfectly benign, and who I personally wouldn't call populists. But in my mind, once you see somebody do the things that Donald Trump did in the campaign, to say my political opponent is illegitimate, she should be locked up. To say, oh, I don't know I'll accept the outcome of the democratic elections to denigrate the most basic rules by which we can have legitimate political disagreements. Once you see that, I think you need to be worried.
4: Claire. I think there are lots of patterns, as you've indicated. (coughs) But I think that, as you've indicated, the pattern that we are seeing actually uh, throughout uh, much of the world is an incredible complacency by establishment parties, a complacency which effectively says that, for example, you use the example of Donald Trump. Instead of considering why it might be that Donald Trump was voted in by millions of people, and why the opposition to Donald Trump was so weak in the form of Hillary Clinton, you turn it on its head and blame the people who voted Donald Trump or blame Donald Trump. Throughout uh, the Western world, we are seeing mainstream establishment parties uh, losing support, with nobody being held to account for that. And then the way that the supporters of those parties deal with it is to say that there is a populist revolt. So at no point do they have to think, what's wrong with our policies? It's always them out there. That's one pattern that I can see. Um, And I get, you know, one of the things that happens is, is it's like, here I am. I'm part of the establishment. I'm part of an establishment party. I'm very unpopular. There's now another. M- and move over there that 's very popular, so we 'll call that popular anti establishment party populist as a way of discrediting them instead of considering why you 're unpopular. it might just be that you have betrayed the millions of people you haven 't got any offer, any political vision to offer, and so on. and um, The other thing that I see is a pattern, and I, and I was kind of uh, really struck by the point about um, you know somebody being uh, c- uh, labeling people. as a a worm, and the degraded uh, language that's been used in much of uh, political life at the moment, is that I actually see that as a widespread phenomenon, but often used against so-called populist voters. I mean, you know, I I know that I'm talking about uh, the UK a lot. I mean, I could obviously talk about deplorables, but I will mention that kind of... Um, uh, a language which basically says, for example, in relation to Brexit, voters that they were just like knuckle dragging, uh, you know, uneducated, uh, uh, low information, duped. Uh, uh, one of the uh, one journalist said, you know, we picked up the stone and look what was crawling underneath. You know, it's not quite a worm, but it's insects. All of this thing has been used to kind of Uh, attack and demonize people who, in good faith, have voted. And I mean not just in Britain, I mean generally. And I think that othering, right, is not just the othering in relation to immigration. I think what's been most unsavoury to watch is the othering of people in their own countries, citizens of countries, um, which, by the way, has got nothing to do with whether they're immigrants or not. Because one of the interesting things is, in this country, for example, it's uh, uh, it seems that over a third of ethnic minorities in this country, many from eth- um, uh, immigrant backgrounds, voted for Brexit, but they were t- talked about as though they were xenophobic, anti foreigner you know, backward-looking, and so on. So I think there's a kind of self, uh, an incredible degree of, of self-flattery in this account of the world, which is we are the decent, good guys. Uh, that th- we've been kind of faced with this kind of mass revolt led by these kind of really dangerous 1930s Hitler uh, Nazis. Uh, millions of people have been fooled by them. We'll then talk about them as though they're kind of uh, 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 not worth considering. And I think that it might be more appropriate to talk about this historic turn in politics and why it is that the uh, establishment, the post-war arrangements are no longer holding up and why it might have something to do with the inadequacy and the inability of those parties to have inspired anything like an offer of substantial hope or change for people uh, throughout the world. And the final thing is, is on, on, on the question of immigration. You know, for all of my political life as like, a lefty anti-racist, I have argued for open borders, I've argued as a, I've as a, 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 a fought against deportations, I've stood outside more bloody police stations as the British state, by the way, in all its various guises has been deporting people for a long time, well before any populist walked through the doors, probably a respectable thing to do for many a year by all the parties, nobody battered an eyelid, right? But one thing that I realised was I never won the arguments with my fellow citizens for open borders. And I happen to be a Democrat. And I happen to think that even though I would like a much more liberal and open, generous attitude to immigration, I do think I might have to convince the odd person. And just simply saying, oh, well, it's the EU rule, for example. Somebody said, well, you know, Hungary is an EU rule. right?" I mean, you should have control of your borders so that you can decide whether you open them or not. I mean, that's the first thing. If you have no control over your borders, And I don't mean you as a government, I mean you as a citizen, if you can basically say (coughs) nothing you do, nothing democratic that you do, will alter our attitude to immigration or the control of borders, you effectively take away people's power as citizens. So what I'd say is that once you give people control of their borders, as citizens you then have a democratic row in your country, I will try and win a liberal view, right? And I might lose. But that's the bloody deal. It's taken me a long time to win any political arguments. (laughs) I would love to be the kind of dictator that could say, my views, which by the way, this is true, my views are far more enlightened than anyone else's. right? And my general view (laughs) is that you should allow me to simply impose them on you all, right? because I know better than you. But I don't believe that that's the basis of liberal democracy. Right? And I respect you and my fellow citizens and myself enough to imagine that we can argue over it. That's what politics is. That's what democracy is. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But to be told you're not allowed to have the argument because somebody else had decided it's more enlightened that borders should be opened of your country and they're usually saying it from outside, that is dictatorial. And if you want to know why there's a revolt, it's against that.
3: One of the things that's really striking about the sort of... More or less intellectual case against populism, or against the, the, the people who the who more or less
4: intellectual case the people
3: <laughs> who <laughs> criticize populism is that they they always claim that uh, they're being caricatured, that you know people like Sasha and me are going around calling Trump voters deplorable and uh, making everything very easy, uh, and then actually in that very act they completely caricature what anybody else believes. So this is an impassioned argument for why voters should be allowed to have a preference for not having open borders. I don't believe anybody on this panel disagrees with that. It's an impassioned argument for why it is that the political establishment has some deep failings. I don't think anybody on this panel disagrees with that. Um, But it is a complete refusal to actually engage with any of the arguments that Sasha or I have made. It is a complete refusal to actually engage with the case that people who call themselves populists, who can be sensibly described as populists, have been attacking democratic institutions in a whole variety of countries. None of that was actually featured in what Claire was saying a moment ago. And that I find surprising. Look, I agree that it's part of liberal democracy, first, that you have individual liberty that the state doesn't get to tell you exactly what you as an individual need to do, that you get to determine freely what you say, how you worship and worship who you're in a relationship with, and all those kinds of things. And secondly, that it's democratic, that collectively you actually decide your fate, and not just at this election, but at the next election and the election after that. But the argument that I've been making is that you've seen in many countries populists destroy that ability. People in Turkey no longer are able to determine what happens to them politically because people who have been democratically elected have abolished the kinds of safeguards you need in order to allow people to change their mind later on. So I'm on the democratic side, but I realize that it takes institutions and independent institutions and a respect for some of the basic rules of society so that it's not just an existential election today and if I win, I get to shut you up for the next 20 years until you somehow Mm -hmm. manage to have a revolution. It is a political system in which you assure people the freedom to determine the fate and change the fate every four or five years.
2: Just to add to that in in response to one thing that you said, Claire, I I think we should be very clear about the difference between voters and leaders. I agree with you that Hillary Clinton's deplorable comment was deplorable, (laughs) and it had no place (laughs) in, in the public debate, and it actually... Uh, created uh, far, more many, far, far more political problems for her than if she had never said it. So there is absolutely a condescension on the political left, and not just the left for that matter, uh, a sort of among establishment parties in general towards these voters. I would say, however, that there's a very big difference between some of the nasty things that were said about Brexit voters uh, mm-hmm. in the run-up to the referendum in this country and what people like Salvini were saying in Italy. Uh, I'm not aware of any hardcore Remainers who went around shooting people. So there, there, there is a difference in, in consequences. And that some of these far-right leaders in Italy and beyond have have fomented the worst sort uh, of violence among some of their supporters. We've seen that uh, in, in this country as well. Um, uh, but it, it, so, I, I agree. So, so, so political murder is, is, is different Politically
4: motivated murder is different but than, just, than condescension. But, but you know, I mean, I, first of all, I, I mean, if I can just clarify one thing, which is I was actually, I mean, now I've been kind of given political murder in Turkey. Um, whereas actually the criticism was was that wha- why didn't we mention Trump and this was a general trend, which I was actually responding to. It's a general trend, let's mention Trump. And I was saying, yes, it's a general trend. There's a general trend. On the specifics, you know, and you could, we could go through each country and what I don't agree with about different political trends that are going on in those countries. But I think there are general trends. And one, one of the things that I, and, and of course, I do understand the difference between political murder and, and calling people names, but I was I was actually talking about uh, first of all, I do not think we have widespread political murder. I, I don't think that is the broad trend yeah. of what is generally described as populist. And secondly, one thing was that well, we all agree. Why caricature those people who say you shouldn't ha- you should or shouldn't have control of your borders? One of the reasons why people voted to leave the EU was because we were told we didn't have control of our borders, right? So actually. The, the way that it works is it's like, well, of course everybody thinks you should have control of your borders. But then Hungary says, well, okay, we'll have control of our borders, we'll shut them. And then they go, you can't do that. You can't do that. Because if you've got control of your borders, you've got to control them the way we want you to. So that actually undermines the very nature of, I, I don't want Hungary to close its borders. I have some sympathy with the country that has felt over the years, that it's been constantly under attack from, you know, and invaded more often than a lot of other countries, might want to close its borders. But I don't agree with it. But I do think if you're going to say you've got control of your border, you can't then say that this means that you're a fascist if you close them. Because that means that you're effectively saying that you haven't got control of your but borders. This is, hmm.
3: again, who, nobody here said you brought up the F word. Nobody said Viktor Orbán is a fascist. Okay. I think okay. that's a misunderstanding. Okay. I shouldn't of what have said the F word. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> but I think, but, but I think the two. Wait, guys. One, 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 one more time. sentence. One, David, t- one more t- sentence. Right. The other thing is that you have to distinguish between policies we disprefer and attacks on democratic institutions. I My agree. primary yeah. concern with Viktor Orbán is not his refugee policy, which I have disagreements with. My primary concern is that there's no longer free and fair elections in the country, yep. and that's why I, I use I the I example of Brexit
4: here in the House of Lords, which well, I know Mr. that
2: Orban leave the EU no, no no, <laughs> no,
4: no, 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 I, <laughs> I would, but <laughs> <Like> I, obviously, <laughs> I mean, I don't <laughs> want him in there. Do I want anyone in there? I want it to collapse. I think it's an imposition, an elite imposition that undermines democracy. But that's uh, my
1: but I think uh, Yasha and Sasha uh, d- underestimate <laughs> the, st- <laughs> the, the the underlying strength and robustness of of, of our democracy, certainly in Europe and the basic decency. Excluding most, Poland and Hungary. Uh, no, not excluding them. No, I will bet uh, you, uh, I you've don't know, changed for the $500, $1,000, that Poland, Hungary, and the United States will be thriving democracies in 20 years' time. Do you really believe that is not the case? Now, there are excesses. Yeah. Okay. A thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe there's
3: twenty dollars a moment ago. But I'm happy to. Thousand dollars. I'm happy yeah. to. You, <laughs> you start if, here. Who defines thriving democracy? If you define it, I'm not so sure. Well, we, we
1: can we can argue about that later. Um, you know, you you, call, you, know, you can focus on some of the you know more extreme populists and some of the things they say, um, but they are not representative of. The bulk of their voters, and what, what I worry about, your focus on um, the, the, you know, you, you extrapolate from from extreme statements to, you know, future policies in these countries, and I don't think that is legitimate. And you end you end up by delegitimizing perfectly decent, mainstream, small C conservative, centre right politics. Um, which is all i think a lot of you know a lot of front National and ukip type voters so are voting Penn for so
2: marie is a small c conservative no
1: no i mean i said her voters um, many of her voters are, are wanting perfectly legitimate things and if you're focusing the whole time on some you know on on one particular fn councillor who sort of said something extreme or whatever you're kind of delegitimizing that the whole politics—I think the mainstream Front National politics is legitimate. The mainstream UKIP politics is legitimate. We might disagree with it, but, you're, but, but by focusing on these, you know, these, you know, these more extreme individuals, you're, de- you're trying to delegitimize their politics, and that is dangerous. Because you, you know, if, you, if those arguments succeed, and, and these parties are, are, do start to be regarded as, as as illegitimate, then we really will see a much more emotional backlash against. Obviously. uh you know, against liberal elite domination of our, of our, of our policy and politics?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not talking <laughs> about some guy at a county rally uh, give, giving a speech uh, f- from the back of a truck. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the party leaders in many cases. So we're talking about Marine Le Pen, not some random person in a local election. We're talking about Frau Capitri and Alexander Gauland and the comments they've made about Bjorn Hooker, who, to my knowledge, still hasn't been kicked out
1: of that day. Well, what is it about Marine Le Pen? She recommended this book. I've had lots of people, lots of mainstream people recommend. I'm not talking yeah,
2: about Mar- Marine yeah. Le Pen recommending a book. We're talking about things like trying to ban halal we're talking about things about trying to deport people, strip people of citizenship, denationalization. These are dangerous ideas, and I think, David, you know, the, you seem to discount the idea that these people might actually come to power someday. Marine Le Pen won thirty-three percent of the vote. That's twice as much as her father won in two thousand two. Mm-hmm. The AfD came out of nowhere and won thirteen percent of the vote in Germany, and without holding power, they are now. Pulling much of the political spectrum along with them, but they didn't come out of nowhere, it's did they? Democracy. They didn't. They, no, uh, no, no. they didn't come out of nowhere. That's Absolutely. the whole point: is they
4: didn't come out of nowhere.
2: I'm not disputing that. They, they, no. they, they, the, the failure of the mainstream party is something mainstream because parties mainstream across is Europe it. is something we all agree We've on. We've got to well, one, one at a time, here, please. Know, so, but the point is, is that they could reach power, and and they've, they, come they've
1: been in power. Lo- lo- lots of lots of populist parties have been in power. Right, and so yeah. so, and so, so you're acknowledging and they often, as I said earlier, they're often domesticated by the experience. Yes. Name, na- name
3: yeah. one example, David.
1: The True Finns.
3: The True Finns were a minority coalition partner. Yeah, name I know, I know, name, name, yeah. Yeah, name an I've example of a populist-led government, which I was democratically displaced someone. from government, without serious damage to the institutions.
4: So what I want to know... Wait, wait, wait. I just... I don't know. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I don't I know. Get, okay, all right. Okay. He made, okay. he made okay. a big okay. right. claim. I want one like example. Wait, right. wait, wait. Guys, I gave you an example of the
1: true things. I talked about the domestication of populist parties. Which is a junior coalition
3: partner in coalition with the mainstream party. That's what I was talking about. I said participation in government. Can we think about why we will vote for them? Can we say David... Can we just record that David doesn't have a single example of a case... Yes, I ...in which... This is In which populists were actually in power they were the majority coalition partners. No, I didn't say that. And they were displaced. I, I said, okay, uh, well, right. you, you will it's get a chance, everybody. But of the so. many cases okay. in which populists have been the majority coalition partners, there isn't an obvious example of how they were defeated and they didn't come back very quickly to actually do serious damage to the institution. Well, so that's I think if you, we should we should if you want to
4: defeat people, you have to think about what the politics are. And what I think is extraordinary about this exchange, which did actually feel like a school quiz at one point just then, I mean, is <laughs> this is not a s- point-scoring matter, right? What is it that we, as a society, value? What are the values? One of the valuable things about David Goodhart's book, I think, is that he understands some of this point about cultural values. What I want to understand, and what I'm modest enough to think that I don't understand entirely, is why people are moved and voted in particular ways at the moment, right? And what is the concerns of millions and millions and millions of people all around Europe that there is this revolt going on? And too quickly, we assume it's uh, uh, right-wing, dodgy, Uh, uh, anti-immigrant populists who are leading these people, instead of considering what kind of society um, might be on offer, why the mainstream political parties have absolutely you know, nothing c- to offer in exchange. Because when you say, you know, we should be stop them, how are we going to stop them? How are we going to stop them? We have to have better arguments. And I haven't heard any if the only argument is to demonize them. But that but is not uh, a better uh, argument. The that is a way of treating yeah, them with the disrespect. Question,
3: the question of this panel is whether populism is a danger to democracy.
4: I know, but it's you also are, not you are,
3: a you are you are You are changing the conversation to something that we agree on. If you read my book, two-thirds of it, outline the deep causes of the rise of populism and some of the ways in which, for example, mainstream parties have to radically reform themselves in order to be able to offer an alternative. So these positions you ascribe to us are simply a caricature. I agree on those things. But when we say, here is example after example after example, of populist parties who have seriously empowered democracy. And by the way, you don't have a single example of a case in which populists were actually in power, not the junior coalition parties, actually in power, which went well. So perhaps we should be concerned. You say, oh, but establishment parties suck. Yes, they do.
4: But, you but that is the, simply deflecting I mean, like, from know, the topic um, of the conversation. Actually, we, okay, we okay guys, I the think. Audience, yes, There's we will
0: something. go to the audience now. Yeah. You've been very patient. Uh, I have a roving mic. Now, is Sarah around? Oh, there you are. Sarah's going to be good enough to, OK. Have your bags up here. For, uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Is Hopefully it, it is on. It's on? Yes, okay. that's yeah. working. OK, so we'll go to the first question. Well, we'll make it. There's one on the person sticking out of the room. I
5: mean, I have two, so whatever. But for David, um, what would you characterize as a non-extreme, slash non-deplorable populist? And to Yashin and Sasha, do you think populism is turning to something akin to like a systemic phenomenon? And what do you think needs to happen to halt this?
0: Let's take a few a yeah. time. Ge- no. OK, well, no, we have here. this gentleman who's leaning out of the
3: oh, room. Okay. Do you have more
6: paper?
7: I'm not running.
0: Can one of the populists
3: lend me a pen?
7: Yeah, shouldn't we distinguish between hostility to migrants and a feeling that a deba- there should be a democratic debate about migration. It seems to me they're fundamentally different things. So the, the mm-hmm. example which several people r- have referred to on the panel is Angela Merkel. You know, in 2015, we, us, we can do this. We can let a million foreigners immigrate into our country. Uh, With that, as far as I can see, any kind of real political debate at all about a, what is a huge step. As it happens, I'm in favor of the very liberal immigration laws. As it happens, I think Germany could easily absorb a million migrants. I don't think it's a problem. But I think it's absolutely outrageous to make that kind of statement, and as far as I can see, three years hence, not had any kind of real political debate about it. And if I was a German, I'd be very angry about it, about the fact that there's there's been no debate. No wonder the AFD has grown stronger under such circumstances.
0: Finally, we'll just, um, gentleman with his hand right there, yeah?
8: Got two questions. Uh, uh, isn't it f- fundamental that the fact that a third of the ethnic minorities voted Brexit is a uh, basically about the quality of political judgment among the voters? And why haven't you mentioned the Democratic Socialists <coughs> of America that beat the, uh, Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic Party elections in New York, which has sh- apparently, according to me, the shaken. The leadership to its core. Great. Well, we'll just, um, if you guys want to sort of go with those,
0: whoever wants to start can kick it off.
1: Um, well, on, on the kind of part, the parties, that are distinguishing between the parties. I mean, I, I mean, I think we should spend more time, and, and this would be one of my criticisms of Sasha and Yasha, they don't spend, they put everybody in the same bag. And we should spend more time actually distinguishing between acceptable populism and unacceptable populism. Well, obviously there is you know, I mean, I think the Front National is an acceptable party. UKIP is an acceptable party. The Freedom Party, the People's Party, I mean, the the Golden Dawn are, are you know, are a gang of street thugs. Um, you know, I mean, that that's a, a very easy and clear distinction. But and I, 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 we can do that. Now there are going to be, you know, extreme uh, individuals even in parties that are legitimate. Um, but I think we need to distinguish between acceptable populism and unacceptable populism. And stop, uh, you know, because. You know, the, 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 these parties act as a kind of safety valve. I mean, these are actually, this is, you know, the, these parties are an example, I think, of democracy actually working well. They're helping to rebalance our democracy. We've had a very one-sided democracy, essentially representing the interests of the educated and the affluent for the last 30 or 40 years. So this is a pushback. Um, and, uh, and, and, and if those parties weren't there representing these voices, I think we'd be in a much worse position.
2: Um. You don't have to be golden dawn to be dangerous. And I'll I'll respond to the questions now. But I think that, yes, we should discern, but we need to do a lot more discerning than you just did. Um, Is it becoming systemic? Uh, Yes, I I think so. I think that this isn't just a matter of of the right, and that's something no one has, has said, but I think we should talk about. There are dangerous populists on the left throughout the world. You look at Venezuela right now, you see a lot of the same ideas and rhetoric, but it's coming from an authoritarian element of the political left. And so I think that um, it's systemic, it exists across the world. One of the places I looked at in, in my book was South Africa, Uh, where there's raging xenophobia against black African migrants who've come to South Africa. And it's not coming from racist white South Africans, it's coming from black South Africans who don't want Nigerians and Congolese and Mozambicans coming to their country. And it's a very similar rhetoric to what you see from these far right parties in Europe. And a lot of the people supporting nasty and violent confrontation of immigrants in South Africa are members of the Communist Party, or members of the ANC. So again, th- this crosses political boundaries, and, and it is becoming uh, systemic. About uh, the, the gentleman's question about, about Germany, uh, I, I think you're right. I think that there is a lot of resentment, uh, and maybe Yasha disagrees with me on this, but I think there's a lot of resentment at the fact that there wasn't a public debate about this, and that it just sort of happened. And there was resentment within the CDU from dissenters within the party who went along with it because their leader pushed push the policy through, but I think a lot of the anger that is translating into votes for the Day now can be traced to that. And that if there had been a more open democratic debate about it, uh, it probably would have turned out differently, and the numbers would have been lower, and the tensions w- wouldn't be as great right now. So I, I, I don't uh, I don't contest that. I think that it's valuable, and I think that um, that sort of circumventing that sort of public Democratic debate is dangerous, and I think it leads to to greater popularity of these populist parties. Finally, uh, the question about New York, um, the 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 candidate who, who won uh, a primary in New York, defeating a, an establishment Democrat, has been a bit of a shock. I th- uh, to this to the to the leadership in Washington. It's not that much of a shock if you've lived in New York City, uh, in the area that she comes from. Um, this the, the, this is something that I'm surprised it didn't happen. Uh, five or ten years ago, I mean, this is a largely immigrant neighborhood. Uh, people are not doing very well. It's it, it's poor. The public services are bad. There's no welfare sp- state to speak of in, in in the United States for the most part. And so, it, it, it's it's quite predictable that something like that would happen. Um, the fact that Nancy Pelosi and the party leadership in Washington is shocked by that re- says, says more about them. And I think that it would probably be beneficial for the Democratic Party uh, if more elections turn out that way, because it would be a more muscular reaction to, to the politics coming from Trump. And it would also signal, more importantly, uh, a new generation of leadership in the Democratic Party that is not an old white man who was defeated but a young Latina woman and someone who's not afraid to to articulate political ideas that have a very strong economic message. I mean one of the things that I do agree with Claire about is that, that there's been a sort of forsaking of any sort of muscular economic message from a lot of these establishment parties and so the old debates that characterized left and right And the competition over economic policy and welfare policy and these sorts of things has largely disappeared from a lot of these centrist parties. And when that that competition is gone, what you see is is people like Marine Le Pen fill the void. And so Marine Le Pen is winning votes from people who used to vote for the Communist Party in France. That's what happens when people aren't contesting that terrain. And I think that that what what we just saw in New York is a new generation coming in and saying, actually, we have something to say about this, and we're going to, to contest that political turf again.
3: Uh, i mostly agree with what sasha has been saying i mean just in terms of the significance of that election i actually think it's much lesser than people think um you know so he didn't uh, as you described it defeat uh, she didn't defeat nancy pelosi she defeated the local democratic candidate in the primaries um it's a uh you know heavily immigrant and also very left-wing part of new york you had every sort of left-wing student in in new york city going out to help the campaign <laughs> Um, it was a primary election with an 11% turnout among Democratic voters, right? Um, and actually, when you look at the pattern of primaries for the last year and a half, what's been striking is the extent to which establishment candidates have actually won again and again. So just as an empirical matter, I don't think you can extrapolate a lot from this one congressional primary in New York City to the direction of a Democratic Party nationally. Um, uh, uh, there was a really important question asked, which, which, which I think ha- helps to address some of the um, sort of claim that we just blame you know, voters for populists for being ridiculous, irrational, racist, whatever, who you know, can't be explained. Um, I mean, when you see a phenomenon happening in many different countries at the same time, you obviously need to assume that there are relatively deep causes for it. Um, and, and there's two mistakes you can make. The first mistake is to think too much in the short term, because what we actually see is that the voter for populists on average has been going, on, going up a long time, since about the year 2000. And the second is that, uh, and I see this in, in, in virtually every country I travel to, uh, you can over ascribe it to local factors. So people in Germany say, oh, it's because Angela Merkel is such a centrist and she's led the sort of political right wide right open. People in the United States say, oh, it's because the Republican Party is radicalized over time. Um, And it seems implausible that both of those things are happening at the same time. right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to look for causes which are, to some degree, at play in many of those cases. Now, there's no cause that's at play in all of those places. But certainly, when you look at the developed affluent democracies, I think three uh, factors obviously come to mind. The first is a stagnation of living standards from one generation to the next. Um, so, in the United States, for example, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And since 1985, it's more or less been flat. situation is a little bit better in Britain, but it's somewhat similar. Um, and that makes a huge difference. It used to be that 90% of people could say, hey, I'm doing much better than my parents did at the same age that I was, and I don't love politicians, I don't completely trust Westminster or Washington or whatever it is, but you know what, in the end, they seem to be sticking to the end of a deal, so let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Now I think a lot of people are saying, you know what, I've worked really hard on my life, I don't have much to show for it, so let's throw some against we wall and see what sticks. How bad could things get? Well, sometimes quite bad. Um, the second thing, I think, is the slow and complicated transition of a set of countries that have long had a sort of mono-ethnic, mono-cultural conception of themselves to more multi-ethnic countries. So uh, in Germany, where I grew up, for example, until 1990, it was essentially impossible to become a German citizen unless you were descended from a German or you married a German. Uh, That has, thankfully, started to change. Um, I think a a big part of society has taken on a more multi-ethnic notion of itself. The citizenship laws have changed. Um, But there's also uh, a real discomfort with that and a real rebellion against that. Um, And some people do have something to lose from that because they had status advantages and certain kinds of uh, advantages from their majority position, which is actually imperiled, and it's understandable. I don't condone it, but it's understandable why people uh, might be angry about that. And, and that's part of the reason. Um, and then thirdly, I think it is the rise of social media and the internet, which makes it much easier to bypass social gatekeepers. Um, that's in many ways a good thing. Um, I was at a conference about a month ago in New York City with uh, one of the survivors of a horrible shooting in Parkland, Florida, who managed to you know, shoot to national prominence through Twitter um, and is now a really important voice in that debate. Uh, incredibly uh, impressive, articulate 17-year-old guy, whether you agree with his position or not. I think it's, it's a great addition to public discourse, but he has a place there. He wouldn't have done 10 or 20 years ago. But it also allows people who want to spread hatred, people who want to spread just simply false information, to have a much bigger role in our politics. And when that comes on uh, the top of the economic frustration, the fears about those demographic changes, that becomes a very dangerous cocktail.
4: Um, I I think that the question about the the point about whether concern about immigration is the same as anti-immigrant is a key question. Because I think that there has been far too much of a trigger-happy attempt at kind of describing people as racist. you know, the, the, the problem for me with the term populism is, is that it's become very promiscuously used, as I tried to indicate. I mean, it's thrown about and bandied, and it's it's always an insult. I mean, I, nobody's ever come up and said, you're well done, you're a great po-. I mean, most of the people who are called populists don't call themselves populist. Whenever anyone calls you a populist, you know they're insulting you, and then very quickly you end up talking about xenophobia and racism, and I think that's often what people's experiences of... Um, their concerns concerned about immigration, then suddenly be morphing into uh, being anti-immigrant. I also think that, I mean, s- somebody asked a question. It may, I may, may, be getting it wrong. What your, what your hint was uh, to the gentleman who asked about the quality of the electorate. I mean, I, I, I. One of the the things that has been fascinating, maybe because I'm interested in education, has been there's been a widespread discussion in the UK actually about the problems of. Um, an electorate that is not uh, educated enough and and it 's a kind of return to some nineteenth century prejudice that because people haven 't got kind of university qualifications or haven 't done formal qualifications that they 're somehow uh, lacking in intelligence and can 't be trusted there 's been serious proposals by the way put forward about you know should we be kind of sending people on education courses to make sure that they 're democratic citizens enough and i mean it, 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 it seems what yeah, so okay, well, actually, Windrush is a perfect example. Good, good. Well, wait for it. Well, well, good. Wait, wait. Good. Okay. No, good. You'll good have your question. chance. You'll have your chance. No, good. No, good question that you asked. That so it seemed to me that the obvious thing about Windrush um, was that, and um, the one of the, the things that ha- has happened, I believe, anyway, is that the government that we have of the day doesn't understand why people voted Brexit and assumes that all Brexit voters are anti-immigrant racists. So they then decide to set up a hostile to immigrate immigrants unit, right, which then basically deprives citizens of this country, the Windrush generation, right, of their citizenship. And guess what? Normal majority of people in this country rose up irate, right? There was not some, oh yeah, let's kick out the Windrush generation at all, because actually this is a multi-ethnic society. Most people in this country, the vast majority of people in this country are not racist. However, there are racists in the world. I don 't doubt it. it 's the conflation of all these things. Anyway, the final thing I wanted to say was, I think we're one of the things we 're underestimating in all of this is the impact of a kind of the culture wars on all this i 'm very uh, interested in some of the things that Mark Leela has been saying in America about the kind of crisis of liberalism, and I do find you know when I think about the dangerous trends that threaten democracy today and when it constantly comes back to me that it 's constitutional or that it's the rise of populism what my interests are is for example the rise of a much more censorious climate where you can't open you can't say things you're that there's a kind of uh, illiberal liberalism that basically says that for example certain huge swathes of speech is hate speech and i feel as though what's happened is that millions of people feel as though they are the victims of a kind of Culture war policing of what they should think and say. And there's a very narrow script of what you're allowed to say in public, what ideas you're allowed to express. And you can very easily find yourself labeled transphobic, Islamophobic, racist, misogynist. People in this uh, will be aware of this. This is a major problem in American universities. This is a major problem here. Nearly 50% of, univers- of, of young people go to universities in this country. So it's not a minor pursuit what's happening in the university campuses. And there's a kind of sense of values clash there that I think is partly something that's missing from this conversation on the rise of populism that I'd at least like to introduce in because I think that otherwise it's not just an economic point. That's the, the reason I'm saying is the left behinds explanation, the idea that people have been economically left behind, I think is true. But I think they also feel as though they've been patronised, they've been marginalised, and their value system has been largely treated as though it's, backward. And that can often mean just people who have, uh, uh, believe in things like family life or whatever, right? Or, 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 or religious, all of these kind of things. So I just want to enter that in because I think that the danger of us kind of shouting up here is that we actually lose some of the subtleties and the complexities of what I think is a historic moment. I think history is being made now. I think there's an anti-establishment backlash. And I think that we need to work out what kind of society we want to live in. We need to be able to speak freely and we need to stop demonising each other. And my fear about the populism discourse is that it's part of the delegitimising demonising that stops us having the open debate. So I'd, I know that I've been getting losing my temper as well, but actually it's unhelpful. But I just think labelling people as populist doesn't get us very far. OK. We are going to go to another round. Please
0: keep your questions succinct. Uh, boy, OK. Well, we have somebody had their hand out over there for a long time. And uh, the lady over here. So
6: there's a gentleman over there. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, in the last half hour, could I ask uh, Sasha and Yasha to actually uh, address the question which was on the title uh, for today? Uh, the question is not, as you seem to think, um, are some political leaders and some governments threatening certain liberal norms and institutions? Because that's really quite an easy question, which we can probably all agree on. It is. The question is, does populism threaten democracy? And perhaps consider the perversity that the reason we're having this discussion primarily is because of what happened when people democratically did something a few years ago from roughly 2016. When people democratically voted for certain things, Brexit, Trump, certain governments in uh, other parts of Europe, and that has created a certain uh, uh, consternation, which has actually led to the uh, mainstream using increasingly undemocratic methods, not just since 2016, but before. Uh, And perhaps that should be more something one considers, which is the threat to democracy from the mainstream people who call themselves anti-populists. I, I refer you to a book that I've been reading, I don't agree a lot of it, um, okay. but it's a book which actually documents how, over the last 20 years, democracy has been undermined in the West as politicians have outsourced power to central banks, to courts, to international institutions like the European Union, to international uh, uh, treaties, to okay. other independent institutions. The book by uh, okay, th- a I certain think, Yasha yeah. Munk okay. um, and It's well worth reading okay. because it is a litany <laughs> of <laughs> undemocratic practices, which is why we're in the situation we're at the moment. That's the real threat okay. to democracy. Uh, there's a question, uh, lady here. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh,
7: yeah.
9: Yes,
0: please <laughs> use <laughs> I
5: the mic. About Thanks. The mic. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to um, start by begin with when did um, popularism um, begin? Um, we haven't spoken about technology and who are in control of technology who are the main um, powers that are running technology which is obviously the West and the USA and also how um, democracy from probably the rock war that was a huge world demonstration of when democracy ended because we were not um, following the laws of of uh, or the laws or rules of war, we did not declare anything. Um, we went in there. It's been proven, especially in Britain, that we did not go about things the right way. No one has been um, prosecuted or even held accountable. We've seen um, cases of. Um Long-winded. Okay, documents. just okay. And okay, question. No, just a quick. Okay, my question is, um, my question is, democracy was broken before the present day. What we think Trump is doing, um, people before this need to be held accountable.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, we have one. At somebody in the back row who? With
5: uh, the tie? Did you? Someone in the back guy? row?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in the very back there. Okay, all right. Please keep it short. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Asher, Asher and Sasha, when Gordon Brown said British jobs for British workers, was he a racist shit or not? <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. all right, very succinct. Um, sorry to make you come all the way up front. <laughs> we I have a gentleman done here. Yeah. I've done my exercise. Okay, and going? that'll that'll probably be the last in this this round here, and then... Just gentleman here? Just gentleman here, yeah. What do we go? I'll tell yeah, you okay. to keep it short, too, please. Please keep it short. Yes, thank okay. you. R- really
2: easy. Um, how many elections will it take for mainstream parties to start focusing on causes rather than symptoms? And secondly, very easy. Um, if populism is telling people what they want to hear and leveraging social media, etc., was Obama a populist?
8: Very <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, who, whoever wants to, to take, you know, do we want to start with David again? Do you want to, or do you want to pass the baton? Um. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, if, you, if you've got a specific, um, I, mean, I, I mean, I do have something to say. Well, why don't you go first say this time?
0: i I mean, we can
2: each answer a few yeah. of them. So yeah. uh, address the title of, of this is populism a threat to democracy? Sometimes it is, and it depends on how you define populism, which would have been a useful exercise, I now realize, before we started this whole debate. I think it's important to distinguish between forms of populism that are a corrective to democracy and forms that are a threat to democracy, and those are terms that come from the academic literature on this that I think are quite useful. A, A populist party can affect a democratic system in different ways, and sometimes, In the sorts of situations that that Claire's described in great detail, populists can act as a corrective to systems that have fallen out of balance and where elite technocrats are making decisions that sideline the people. And they can be a corrective, and I fully acknowledge that. They can also be a threat, which is what I've been trying to argue the entire time in this back and forth with David, is that sometimes they start to implement policies and ideas or start to shift the debate in a country in a dangerous direction, and in the future, if they do manage to come to power, they could implement these laws and policies. And even if they don't come to power, what we've seen in several of the instances discussed, Italy, Denmark, Poland, uh, that well, Italy and Denmark, uh, uh, most notably, mm-hmm. you see parties that won 18 or 20% of the vote dictating the political debate and pulling everyone else in their direction. So in that sense, populists can be a threat to democracy. So I think we have to discern that there are different strains of populism and that they can act in different ways on democratic systems. Um, Was Obama a populist? That's a good and interesting question, so I'll leave the others to other people, but I'll answer (laughs) that one. Um, uh, I would say that that in some respects he was, I would call it more of an an anti-establishment strain in his rhetoric, and I think that Obama and Trump actually have some similarities in terms of their pitch to voters. If you look back at what Obama did during the election and i think this is significant because if you look at some of the states mm-hmm. where trump mm-hmm. surprised everyone in the u.s including his own campaign and the republican party wisconsin michigan uh pennsylvania states that have gone democratic for a long time and that went for obama the the shift at the margin was two-time Obama voters and in some cases one-time Obama voters who went for Trump this time. People in in counties like Macomb County mm-hmm. in Michigan near where <laughs> I grew up mm-hmm. that had consistently blue-collar union households that had gone democratic for 20, 30 years voting for Trump. And so those are the sorts of places where this happened. Obama did something during those campaigns that appealed to those voters and Trump also did something and I would argue that what they <laughs> did What both of them did was they presented themselves as (laughs) anti-establishment candidates outside of the swamp of Washington. You saw similar rhetoric. And so despite being very different people with very different policies and very different morality Mm -hmm. and very different views of what American democracy should be, their pitch to voters was similar in some ways. And so in that sense, uh, Obama was an anti-establishment candidate. And I think that that's why he appealed to some of the same people who later Mm -hmm. voted for Trump.
1: Mm. Let, let, yeah, okay, wait, let me, <coughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me, on, I'll, I'll answer the Gordon Brown one, I mean, Yasha can perhaps in a minute, I mean, of course, it says British jobs for British workers is not racist, it is citizenship-ist, um, uh, but it was a very significant moment, I think, was it 2006, 2007, which just sort of indicated how far from, you've got a legitimate mainstream political instincts, um, British politics have moved, the fact that we had such a row over something that, Know, I think probably only 20 years earlier, it would have been so banal and commonsensical to say British jobs for British workers uh, that n- nobody would have noticed it at all. And that just in that period, um, we had moved such a long way from, I think, you know, legitimate common sense ideas about fellow citizen favoritism, completely compatible with the idea of the moral equality of all human beings, but the fact that your particular political community, that you... you, you, you um, put place the rights of your political community before before the rights of, of, of people living the other side of the world of course you do um, you know people always have done and always will do it's now much more regulated um, by by law than it was but these are these are perfectly legitimate um, ideas of, of modern citizenship fellow citizen favoritism as I say um, and um, you know as, as uh, the, the gentleman who talked about the, the kind of the hollowing out of democracy I do think is a has been quite a big factor in this. One of the most significant facts relating to the Brexit vote was the fact that I think it was the 3 million of the, of the 17 million people who voted for Brexit had not voted in the preceding five elections, I think it was, because they thought they were all the same. And on a lot of the things that affect the everyday life of, of you know, middle and lower income people in Britain, they are all the same, they were all the same. Um, and the, and the and technic this technocratic depoliticization, the hollowing out, you know, the, all of those decisions made about how how do we decide on risk of, of you know GM food or financial products? Well, the WTO committees decide that now. Uh, you know, the European Union decides ex- existential things like what our immigration policy should be for us. And then, as you said, you know, the Bank of England independence, much more independent judiciary. Now, all of those things, on their own terms, may be completely justifiable. But you take things, more and more things, out of the democratic contest, and they're going to be decided according to the values and priorities of the people that I call the Anywheres. They'll be, dec- you know, they'll be decided on grounds of, uh, in, you know, individualistic, internationally minded, pro-diversity views. All again, all might be perfectly justifiable, but they don't necessarily re- represent the interests of the large, small-c conservative majority of the population. Um, so. Um, that is why the whole issue of national democratic accountability has become so much more important. That is why that is what the Brexit vote was partly about. Because a lot of the people who have been who have been responsible for designing this process of depoliticization are f- sort of feel empowered by, you know, by, by the, the 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 kind of the, the, the transcending of democracy from the nation-state to other places. They feel empowered by it, but the vast majority of citizens who you know, you know, we live in a world of great status and economic inequality. The one area where we are all equal with Bill Gates is that we all have one vote. We are all equal in the political domain. And people have, have fortunately, I think in some ways, used that. Um, Use that. The political equality and economic inequality are in some senses in tension with each other. And we've seen a, a, a push, people have used their political power um, to, to great effect. And. Um, I mean, just just a final point. It's 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 not directly related to any of the questions, but the reason why I worry about the the, the Yasha Sasha uh, approach to, um, <laughs> to to populism and the kind of um, you know focusing on the on the on the kind of you know extremes and the and the uh, awful quotes and the awful actions and the uh, and, and the, dele- it, the, the delegitimization. Look at Sweden the exclusion policy the delegitimization policy is there in sweden the way that the sweden democrats have been excluded by the swedish political class and media class has had the result of the sweden democrats possibly winning the next election i mean i know Sa- sasha knows the country better than i do but they are they have flourished through being excluded they are now a much greater political force and i think this is the kind of logic of your view is the kind of Sweden Democrat exclusion policy. I mean, on (coughs) the last point,
3: you know, the Sweden Democrats are literally drawn, and I'm not being hyperbolic, they they are actually the electoral outgrowth of a movement which was proudly, self-describably, neo-Nazi 20 years ago. Now, that is not what they are now, and you can have a debate about how you should treat them now and, and, and when you start to trust the transition like that. But when you know we're saying it is obviously unacceptable to say, hey, you guys are self-described neo-Nazis. Perhaps we don't want to buddy up with you. And that's not somehow undemocratic or deeply problematic or, 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 or sort of a reason why we have a problems. I think that's an odd analysis. I think whatever drives people to vote for a party that describes itself in that way is a little deeper than, oh, you know, here's some neo-Nazis, but because these other guys don't want to talk to the neo-Nazis, I'm going to go vote for the neo-Nazis. They are not neo-Nazis.
1: Um, I mean, they, like you said, they grew out of, I mean, it's like saying half the bloody Blair cabinet were, had been Trotskyists when they were young, when I we saying that, you know, that they shouldn't have been allowed in a Blair cabinet. Okay. People changed their views if one section of that party. Jimmy Ackerson comes from the moderate party, the guy that runs the Sweden Democrats. I mean, it's
9: ridiculous.
10: Okay. Uh, <laughs>
3: go, 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 go read up the Wikipedia entry on the Sweden Democrats, everyone in the audience, we can see whether you agree with, with David or me. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, optimistic do. on this one. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I do think it's important to be clear about what the definition of, of, of a populist is, because it's what gives definition to why there's a coherence between these different kinds of movements, and why it is that I think i dangerous. Now, on one level, it's perfectly natural to be skeptical about the idea that populism is a coherent category. I mean, as you may have noticed, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, doesn't appear to be, let's say, overly fond of Muslims. Um, Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey, doesn't appear to be overly fond of anybody who's not a Muslim. Um, we see that some populists are very right-wing economically and want to uh, uh, make the welfare state smaller, hand out presents to big corporations, and so on. Others, as Sasha has pointed out, are very left-wing economically, uh, like Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela, who attacked business and promised the expansion of a welfare state and and destroy the democratic institutions there. So it's tempting to say, well, perhaps we don't have anything in common. Well, I do think, and it's sort of implicit in some of our questions at the beginning, um, that they are united in essentially delegitimizing uh, the political opposition, saying that only they truly speak for the people, that politics is at its heart simple, and that once they're in power, they're going to solve everything. Um, I am your voice, Donald Trump said at the Republican National Convention. and That's quite telling. And so um, it, it lies in the nature of politics that people claim that there are certain political problems that the old guys didn't really do the job right, that there are people who are too powerful who need to be taken down a peg, and everybody from Barack Obama to answer that question to to Gordon Brown to everybody else employs that rhetoric, and that's absolutely fine. Um, But there is also a way of saying, yes, of course I will accept the outcome of the election. No, I'm not going to go and lock up my political opponents, all of the things that Donald Trump violated. Or, as John McCain did in his debate with Barack Obama, where he was asked a couple of days before the election by somebody at one of his town halls, you know, I think Barack Obama is is, is an Arab and he's a bad man, and he's dangerous to my country. And John McCain said, No, 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 no. I have deep disagreements with Barack Obama. I disagree with him in important ways, but he's an honorable man, and if he becomes president of the United States, you don't have to be scared. So that is the way of drawing the distinction between a legitimate political opposition who is committed to democratic rules and norms, and you acknowledge that and saying that only you stand for the people. So uh, uh, there's two directions to take. But the first is the question about British jobs for British people. Um, uh, um, I don't much like the phrase myself. I do agree with David that insofar as different ethnicities and religions and so on are included under the category of what is British, that is perfectly fine. I also think that we need to fight for that inclusive patriotism. I argue for inclusive patriotism in my book. I think there is a special place for certain forms of national solidarity. But in my mind, they need to apply to anybody who's a citizen, citizen, irrespective of where they come from. And it is rather striking that the people who I would call populists, not in every case, but certainly most of the right-wing populists, don't accept that. That, for example, in Germany, the leader of the AFD, not a random guy, said about a politician he dislikes of Turkish origin, <coughs> that they should have taken her, deported her back to Anatolia, and murdered her there. Right? That is uh, making quite clear that this party does not accept people who aren't ethnically German as true Germans. And that's one of the things that's dangerous, not about all populist parties, but about a lot of the right-wing populist parties. Now, uh, to the question about whether populism threatens democracy. Um, what I would say is that when you look at the class of people who I would call populists, the class of people who don't accept basic rules and norms of democracy verbally when they're running for office, who do delegitimize their opponents in that kind of way, who um, uh, who attack the opposition as betraying the will of the people and so on and so forth, and you look at what they do once they come into office, you have plenty of examples where they've actually destroyed democratic institutions. You have plenty of examples, as in Hungary and Turkey, where they uh, continue to have elections, but, but any reasonable observer recognizes that they're no longer free and, and certainly they're no longer fair. Um, and you have very, very few examples of ones which have been elected democratically at the polls because the institutions have survived. And so you can look at that. Pattern of facts and say I'm not answering the question, but then I'm afraid I don't know how to. Because if you look at all of the people who are populists and you see that in very many cases they have in fact destroyed democracy, in some places it's too early to tell, but you don't have a good case of where they haven't actually undermined democracy seriously. That to me is an obvious case where we need to be very concerned.
7: Wait, wait,
0: whoa, wait for the mic, guys, please, sorry. Um, Claire, did
4: you want to say anything? Yes. Uh, I, I, actually, um, I, I'm, I'm keen to hear some more from the audience, so I'll yeah. keep it. Uh, okay, brief all right. No I, I wanted one, one thing. I was only wanted to say one thing, quick, um, which was, I think the question about Obama and actually the question about Iraq indicate the fact that there is a, a, some concern from people on my side of the argument about certain double standards. I mean, you know, that, that who is labelled, uh, you know, anti-establishment. Uh, it, at one point, when he said, you know, maybe populism is anti-establishment. <laughs> and in which case I am a populist because I'm definitely anti-establishment and I have been for many a year but you know is that such a bad thing but the Iraq point I think is also well made because you just feel as though people have been um, feeling as though what passes for democracy has been excluding them for a long time and people have been looking around desperately I would say for some years and Obama was part of this for politicians that they could believe in some ideas right and Actually, the disillusion with Obama set the scene for Donald Trump in many ways, right? People felt they were sold a pop, and a lot of the same people voted for him. But we don't usually call Obama a populist. So I think that noting the double standards, noting that democracy, it it feels as though democracy has been under assault from things like, you know, the invasion of Iraq, the disillusionment with uh, uh, the political process, the outsourcing that people are talked to, I think just complicates the issue. And I really genuinely fear that the, um, the over-concentration on delegitimizing people as populists is going to create a disillusion with democracy. I mean, the number of people I know who... Uh, voted Brexit, who now say, what is the point of ever, ever, ever voting again? I'm never going to bother, right? Because I went out, I voted, I've been called scum ever since, and now they're not even going to deliver, right? What is the point of democracy? So I believe in democracy, I don't want people to be disillusioned by it, but if we carry on... Uh, saying that anyone who believes in the will of the people, I do believe in the will of the people, by the way. I, I, I don't want to I, I be able to say that phrase, I believe in the will of the people, without you all imagining I'm about to join the Swedish Democrats. Right? <laughs> I, I, the will of the people, popular sovereignty, national sovereignty, is the thing that liberalism is. That was what the Enlightenment gave us. So I'm not betraying that just because somebody tells me that using the phrase means that I might be a bit dodgy. Okay, we we probably got I didn't do that, but okay. you know, nice we, try.
0: We've got about five minutes, and I'm going to probably squeeze about four questions in very quickly. They may or may not be answered. I can't promise. Um, we had a gentleman in a tie over there. Okay,
10: he's just over here. Um,
9: I'd like to see a smart gentleman. All
0: right,
10: okay. um, so it's a, a question, very quick question, directed towards uh, uh, Yasha and, and, and Sasha. Uh, as uh, as Democrats, assuming we're all Democrats in the, in the room, what's the best way of defending democracy? So I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that I should focus my concerns on uh, attacking uh, you know, Hungary and, and Viktor Orban. It um, uh, strikes me as uh, kind of verging on the prejudicial, uh, that that should be my concern when, uh, as has already been pointed out, we've got the House of Lords undemocratic, uh, unelected uh, body, the second largest... Legislative assembly in the world, uh, nobody voted for them. Yet they have a decisive influence over uh, British politics. Uh, they've, you know, 15 amendments to the EU withdrawal bill. That seems to be a bigger problem for Democrats in the UK uh, than uh, than what's going on in Hungary. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, we'll take this question up the front here. Um, no. Yeah, it's um, a comment for
9: Claire and possibly a follow-up from what was just asked. Um, you talked about earlier about the unelected House of Lords and how they're trying to stymie Brexit. Um, I think perhaps you're being irresponsible in saying that because it's appealing to emotion rather than making an actual point because that's the, pap- the point of the House of Lords is as a safety check to part to the House of Commons. They're supposed to be unelected. They're supposed to be specialists. That's their point. So c- by saying they're undemocratic and they're not elected, it's just stating the obvious. That's you know that's part of the job title, and they're simply doing their jobs. They're scrutinizing the stuff and they're um, pulling up objections. That's their job. And when you s- when you say that people are saying that the electorate is uneducated, they don't mean they don't have degrees and PhDs. I I think you're being disingenuous there. They're talking about. Um, Okay. they're talking about um, how, um, sorry. Oh, we, get the, we got the question, your question's clear. Now we
0: understand. Okay, we'll just move over to this gentleman over yeah. here, sorry, they're and they're then we'll come over to this political side political of the room. It means to give you a dirty look,
8: confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll get the question out quickly before, anyone <laughs> before <laughs> rambling on. Um, to what extent did the left, the liberal, the secular dig the grave of democracy and si- you, simply it's happened, is that the populists have pushed you in, have pushed democracy into a grave, dug by the left. The bon pesante. I could give you a, just flash out an example. I didn't notice any of you complaining when Italy had a uh, government imposed upon it that had zero elected members. I didn't hear the word populism banded about there or anything wrong. I didn't hear you, uh, Yasha or Sasha, complain when Hungary had a, f- a completely illegitimate constitution fostered upon it with no popular consent at all, which all has subsequently changed. I didn't okay. hear you complain about popular... Pop, pop okay. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right.
5: question was, um, well, I think I might use it as... We'll question. take
0: two more. I think we're just going to wrap up over here. We've got sort of one gentleman there and then over here, sorry.
10: Well, I wish this had happened about a month ago because I did my dissertation on this. Ah, um, right. But one of the things I did was on the technological influences as how they pertain to the dangers of democracy. One of the things I found was that we're very much, analo- politics is very much, by its nature, a very analog, arcane state of, of process, and we're living in a very digital era. So we can't, accel- the acceleration of change um, that technology has forced upon us as a species, as societies, politics can't and isn't compatible with that rate of change. It's opened up the avenues through which this populism has come back to the forefront in the West and in all around the world. You see these these new forms of governments facing this sort of crisis of identity. Are we just going to see more of this in the future when you look at the speed? we've We've... Facebook has gone from being nowhere to being dominant on the internet in the same space of time it took the civil rights movement. We're not going to find a way to change politics to make it compatible with this new platform that we have created and we don't know how to use. So is this just the future for us now? Thank you. Um,
0: I'll just let these two individuals, uh, one here, this gentleman, Okay,
7: and then. I'll um, keep it very short. Very short, please. Very Very short. Is Corbyn's labor populist? (laughs) <laughs> okay.
8: Another great essay question. Hmm.
6: <laughs> to what extent is the problems we're having with populism the cause is that to be laid at the door of the fact that democracy is not deliberative enough? If the mechanisms were ensuring that democracy was deliberative enough, we wouldn't have a problem with de- populism.
0: Okay, well we have a lot of questions there for you to sink your teeth into. Very quickly in about... Uh, maybe 30 seconds each. You Can you guys,
7: you
1: guys? OK. Just OK. Uh,
2: lightning round. Um, I'm not going to address all of them, but some <laughs> of them. Did the left dig the grave? Um, to, to some extent, the left is responsible. But implicit in your question, if democracy is being pushed into that grave, is that some populists do pose a threat mm-hmm. to democracy and could push it into that grave. Uh, the technology question. Uh, I think is interesting, and I would take it beyond Facebook. Um, beyond social media is going to be a debate about artificial intelligence. And to go back to the question from the gentleman in the back, was Gordon Brown a racist shit for saying British jobs for British workers? The next generation version of that question will be uh, you know, jobs for human workers or for robots. And that's, <laughs> not, that's not too far away and i think that if we look at the kind of political backlash we've seen to immigration and the rhetoric around they're taking our jobs you haven't seen anything yet uh when this when this artificial intelligence debate really begins and when human workers are replaced in larger numbers than they they are already are being so i think that we're going to see a lot of the same rhetoric and um this debate is is potentially going to go in, in a very different uh, direction, but you will hear some of the same ideas, and uh, that is, is is where this is going. I'll let others answer
1: some of the other points.
0: Who wants to go next?
2: Anybody? Oh,
1: okay. Right. I mean, um, I mean, I assume these are our final words. So, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to kind of sort of summing up in a way, um, you know, both both some of the questions, but also what uh, you two guys have been saying. I mean, I I still think that you're placing far too much of of your case against populism on slightly random, extreme quotes from creepy populist leaders. Um, uh, But let me give you that one of the most extreme populist quotes from this country in recent years comes from the man who runs the institute where I think Yasha works part of the time, Tony Blair, who famously said, new Labour are the political wing of the British people. I mean, you know, how more populist than that do you get? Um, but that doesn't mean to say we're on the way back to the 1930s. Um, I mean, the, 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 the point was made earlier about, how, you know, how we, need, we must distinguish, and, and I think too many, um, too, too many liberals elide hostility to mass immigration with hostility to individual immigrants. I mean, I think it's been a remarkable story, the, the, the story of liberalisation on attitudes to race in the last 20 or 30 years, even during the period when, when large-scale immigration has been rising and rising to historically unprecedented levels in this country. One percent of the British population admit to being very prejudiced against people from different races to them, um, uh, but, uh, and there is a big but here, people, the, the idea of race equality living in a multi-ethnic society is completely accepted. You know, racism is one of the greatest uh, taboos in our society. Yeah. However. However, we have never had a society which has moved from having a very large ethnic majority to having that ethnic majority becoming a minority, or close to it, uh, a minority in many parts of the country. And we are moving towards that. Um, uh, America is, is, is already there. Um, but in the, in particularly in these older European societies, which have always had uh, very significant ethnic majorities, I think it is a huge... Uh, question whether we are going to see um, a, a, a serious emergence of a kind of white identity politics that I think does partly describe the politics of Donald Trump. Um, and if we do not um, allow for these legitimate populist I- expressions, um, w- which are often saying essentially, you know, we value security and familiarity, we are not hostile to the other, but we want to slow down social change. Um, We do not like the rapid demographic change that has happened in in my town or neighbourhood. Uh, It it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And if we don't regard those views as legitimate, and if we do not regard the parties that have been forced, because the mainstream parties have not expressed those views, it has been up to these um, often rather creepy populist parties to do so. But if we do not take those views seriously one way or another, however they're expressed, then I think we will face a serious problem. And do not delegitimate those voices. Do not go down the Sweden-Democrat route. Thank you.
0: Okay. Um, last, last comments from... So since this seems to be
3: sort of summing up uh, statements uh, time, I suppose I have two points. Uh, the first is that, that I really think, uh, and in that sense, I think David and Claire have been great representatives of sort of their side of the debate. Uh, there's an attempt to turn the question of whether populism is dangerous to democracy into a question about whether or not everything is wonderful now. Um, And and just don't fall for that trick. Because, of course, there's lots of things wrong with the established political parties. Of course, there are real problems in our society which people are reacting to when they are tempted to vote for populists, when they do vote for populists. Uh, and I don't think that uh Sacha or I have ever uh, denied that. Um, but two things can be true at the same time. It can be true at the same time that, as the gentleman in the audience helpfully pointed out, I argue in my book, uh, in many ways, our political institutions are not sufficiently reactive to the preferences of the people. It can be true that uh, there are certain challenges around different policy areas that we need to address better and all of those things. It may be true that. Uh, more moderate political parties need to radically reform the kind of policies that they offer in order to actually motivate people to go vote for them. And at the same time, you can have a very clear pattern in which a particular kind of politician who points at all of the problems in society and says, the way to solve that is for you to give all of your trust in me. I alone really speak for everybody. Just trust me for a few years. I'm going to be the voice of the people and everything will be fine. There's a very clear pattern that those kinds of politicians, not just in Eastern Europe, but, but everywhere from Turkey to Russia uh, to, I would argue, at the moment, the United States, has seriously undermined democratic institutions in a way that's very, very concerning. And I, I hope that if you take anything away from today, it is that. The second point is that I've clearly been vindicated in my claim that it's a deep mistake to appear on a panel in which <laughs> one panelist is called Yasha
8: and the other is called
4: In some ways, I've never been so optimistic or enthusiastic about the prospects for democracy, because one of the things that has happened everywhere is that politics now matters. And people have got a sense, the genie is out of the bottle. In many countries, people have suddenly realized that they can be actors on the stage. For many years, we've been told there was no alternative. Margaret Thatcher's words, there is no alternative. Um, uh, End of history, as Fukuyama said. and I think that it's exciting that the masses of people have discovered that they can be active actors. I think that this has seriously discombobulated the establishment. They don't know whether they're coming or go. they're so used to not having to be accountable to anyone, they can't work it out what's going on at all. Um, so I think it's a very exciting period with great possibilities. Of course, f- change always has risks so i don't mean the future is bright and how wonderful i mean that democracy is the answer freedom is the answer and i feel as though both of them have uh, uh, intruded onto the historical stage and that gives us a chance of uh, uh, being active uh, uh, sort of shapers of the future on the the question on the lords which is what i'll finish with well I I mean, it always was undemocratic, Uh, I I think it should be abolished anyway, but I wanted to talk about one thing that I am worried about, which is I think that there has been an unapologetic uh, emergence of explicit anti-working class elitism uh, um, in recent, in the last couple of years, which I'm kind of slightly concerned about, and some of it involves the peers. But there was a kind of funny thing that happened last week, which was uh, people who, who are British will know who Gina Miller is. So Gina Miller is a big QC. She believes that uh, she wants to overturn the, the. She wants a second referendum. She doesn't believe in Brexit and so on. But anyway, she wrote this letter along with a lot of peers. That was the thing, and a lot of other QCs to the Guardian, saying that if we left the EU, women's rights would be uh, uh, finished. Right? There would be women's rights would be over, which is obviously insulting to the suffragettes, women's liberation movement activists, and every all of us who fought for it for a long time. Right. And so there was a bit of a backlash on social media, which is actually why I like social media, because actually, occasionally you get to have a say. So anyway, Gina Miller was absolutely upset that there was this backlash, and she asked incredulously, "She said, people responding negatively to our letter regarding the loss of women's rights post-Brexit. No more than the top women signatories, the top women signatories. No more than the top women sign." Yes, we bloody well do know more than the top women signatories. Yeah. Of course we know more than the top. Who are the top women? So if you've got QC, or peer after your name, you do not know more about women's rights. It does not give you an insight into women's equality or the fight for it. And um, what gives you an insight into it is, is that you're a Democrat who has fought for it. And Gina Miller has never been that. so I uh, stand with the will of the people and against the unelected peers, the unelected QCs who think that they know better than us and that staying in an unelected EU, uh, undemocratic EU, would benefit us all. I just don't think it will. So I'm excited about what we possibly can do now. Thank you, Claire. Um, well, it just remains
0: for me two things. First of all, there are books on sale at the back, so please, uh, these authors will be here to, to sign those books. I encourage you to pick a copy up. Uh, And it just remains for me to to thank our speakers. Thanks very much.